BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, doing a pre-record as it is my birthday week, and I have taken the rest of the week off. But, dear ones, I always think of you before I head out on a mini relaxing vacation. So, I have banked a bunch of really good interviews, and today... I'm really excited to bring back on to Woke AF my friend and MSNBC host, Eamon Mohadeen. Um, I have known Eamon for a couple of years now, and I have to tell you that he is one of the hosts and reporters and journalists that I really appreciate and whose voice I value because I complain a lot. Let, let's, let's, let's be clear, and, and rightfully so that our media, the mainstream media, is full of shit, and they are the biggest instruments um, for white supremacy. What do I mean by that? You know, depending on where you are in your career and what time of day you come on, and I want to give you a little bit of like insight into TV and how TV works. Regardless of whether or not you're in entertainment or you're in politics, it kind of works the same way, which is that ratings run everything. And if there are big stories to cover and that's what everybody's paying attention to, then the powers that be say, this is what you're paying attention to. But I often ask the question, particularly let's use critical race theory as an example, which Eamon and I will talk about. Critical race theory is a bullshit topic that the right has decided is their mode of entree these days. Uh, It's the thing, it's the boogeyman, it's the thing that they're going to get all riled up about. And the reality is, what we all know to be true because we believe in facts, is that critical race theory is something that is taught in law school. It is something that is taught at the graduate level. It is not taught in K-12 through education. There is no curriculum for critical race theory. 
But what white folks have decided is that they don't want their children learning from black and brown authors. They don't want uh, a critical uh, analysis about this country, right? About our history, our founding, how certain policies are approved and work for the benefit of a small group of people. They don't want to, and as I talked about yesterday, they don't want to interrogate their emotions, right? Around what it means to be white, to have white privilege, to have societies and structures that are made for your benefit at the expense of so many others. Instead, they want their kids to be as ignorant to reality as they have been. And they think that by doing so, that means being race neutral. Well, what has every single icon of the civil rights era and beyond ever said is that you cannot be neutral in the face of injustice, right? And what I have said is this, simply, that if you are from a marginalized community, if you are black in America, and let me just speak from the black perspective, you learn from a very young age about racism. You learn when people will stop looking at you on the street and thinking that you're cute and instead see you as a threat, particularly if you were a boy, right? That happens a lot younger. We knew it around the time that Tamir Rice was murdered by police officers because he was playing on a playground with a toy gun, as kids do, and he was killed. And I remember all the commentary around that. Well, why was he on the playground? Why was he playing with the toy gun? Meanwhile, these are the same motherfuckers that give their children AR-15s to play with, right? That think that that is their right. You didn't hear anybody coming out and defending the murder of Tamir Rice, right? No, you didn't hear cops coming out. You didn't hear the NRA. You heard nothing, crickets. So if black people have to teach their children from basically the time that they start toddling around and talking about race and racism and loving their skin and loving their hair, also they can build up a shield and an armor in a world that doesn't want to see them. And if they do see them, sees them and despises them, then you need to build up that inner strength. And that comes from the moments that that child begins to take their first steps. That's our reality. That is not hyperbole. You can engage with any black person and ask them, how young were you when you learned about racism? How, long were you, were, how young were your children when you started to talk to them about racism and discrimination? You can ask them those questions and they, every single one of us has an answer. The dates may vary, but you will be shocked at how early, right? It happens. Because... While white people have the privilege to be able to want to protect and to lie to their children, we don't because it will cost our kids their lives. If they don't know how to react, if they're pulled over, if they're stopped while they're walking on the street, how to engage with a racist teacher or principal, right? That could be it for them. And we know that. Because we know that in America, black and brown people don't get a second chance. We barely get a fucking first one. My anger around critical race theory and the boogeyman that they have created is that if in fact we all did think critically 
about race and racism and how it plays into every single facet of our lives, then maybe we would all be exhausted and not just those that experience racism on a regular basis and what it is like to live in a country and live in a world that hates you, right? But instead, we would find ways and common ground and the ability to change it. But you see, the powers that be, those that benefit from vitriol, those that profit from rage and anger and hate, they don't want there to be common ground. They don't want there to be a discussion and an interrogation into how this country was formed and whose back it was on. You know, one of the things that I'll say in another interview later this week or early next week is, you know, with regard to how we have been lied to, all of us, and that it has cost us so much, right? We're going through K through 12, learning so very little about the truth. One of the things that I hate the most is when people say, in response to something atrocious or cruel that is happening in America, this is not who we are. Well, if you actually knew about America's founding and about the things that have been done and justified in your name, you would never utter that sentence. This is not who we are. It's always who we are. It's always who we've been. We've been stealing people's children from them. We've been sterilizing women. We've been beating black people in the street and hanging them from trees. We've been burning down their churches and, and, and torching their homes, right? Like we've been doing that. But you see, those truths have been kept from white people, right? And now they want to keep it from their children and their children's children. They want to continue the perpetuation of being a bunch of ostriches with their heads in the sand. And then turn around and say, why are those black people so angry? Why can't they just follow the rules? Why can't they just do X, Y, and Z? Because you have no idea what the fuck you are asking us to do, to be frank. You have never met a people with more grace than black people. White people literally went, stormed the Capitol building, and shit in the halls of our democracy based on a fucking lie. Black people in this country have hung from trees, bridges, have had crosses burned on their lawns, their homes bombed, their churches firebombed, their businesses destroyed, mass graves filled with black bodies, right? And our government sanctioning it all along the way. And somehow, somehow, we manage still to get up, to go to work, to smile, to dance, to provide food on the table for our families, to continue to pray and have hope and have smiles on our faces. And I wonder if white Americans had to deal, experience a tenth of what we have experienced throughout generations, how they would feel. How soon it would take them to want to burn this fucking country to the ground, which by the way, they did because Donald Trump wanted them to for him, right? They wanted to hang the vice president of the United States because they didn't get their, the president that they wanted elected. Imagine not having the president that you wanted elected every single president, except one, Obama. 
I say all that to say that the media plays a large part in creating these divides, in adding more fuel to the fire because it's good for ratings, in creating food fights or uplifting one person's narrative of what it means to be an American, which Eamon will talk about. You know, let's be honest when we're talking about regular moms or American moms, you're talking about white women because there are all types of moms. There are all types of people that care about what their kids are learning, right? And not just care to sit around and burn books because you're afraid of the fucking truth, but care that their children are learning to love themselves, to love the person next to them, to be stewards of our environment. You know, we talk about education anxiety right? Or what the media is doing by talking about education anxiety. And I'm like, where was this kind of outrage over vaccines and over teaching people the truth when your kids are being gunned down in their fucking classrooms? I didn't see people flipping over tables and screaming at school board members around mass shootings that happen in schools on a regular basis or not having clean air in the classrooms or Textbooks that tell the truth? No, none of that. They don't have education anxiety. They're just racist. Plain and simple. But the media looks for euphemisms, looks for excuses, and looks for ways to find empathy for everyone, every white person, at the expense of every other community. So Eamon and I will unpack that in our conversation coming up next. Do tell me in the comments section what you think that the media's responsibility is and whether or not you think that they are a tool of white supremacy. And if you don't, I want to understand your perspective as well. Coming up next is my conversation with MSNBC host of the show Eamon on Saturdays and Sundays on MSNBC. Folks, I am really excited to welcome back to Woke AF my friend and the host of Amen on MSNBC, Amen Mohadeen. Um, so excited uh, to have you back. Wondering, you know, the media, Amen, is a tricky, tricky place. Uh, <laughs> I think that mainstream media is responsible for more than it takes accountability for. Um, I want to talk to you about one six. We want to start there. And, you know, the fact that we are, you know, waiting for subpoenas to actually be enforced. Uh, it's been almost three weeks since Steve Bannon was held in content, uh, contempt. Um, nothing has happened from our, from our justice department, but you know, what are your thoughts as somebody that is a part of media that is covering these stories how do you think, how, how would you critique your, your, your colleagues, yourself in terms of how we are relating the fact that I believe that we're still in a slow moving coup. I don't think that what transpired on one six was one and done. I think that as Bill Maher said many, many weeks ago, this is a slow moving coup. It's still unfolding. We have members of Congress just today that posted threatening images against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez like death porn, like he's excited about the potential of getting to kill her, right? Do, how, how, how are you feeling about how this is being covered and the urgency of the moment that we're in with our democracy? Yeah, so I think that the way I would approach it is there's definitely a few different layers to this story, right? Um, there is 
what I would call like the general consensus around January the 6th. And then there's like the specifics of following the developments around the investigation of January the 6th. And I would say the general consensus right now in this country around January the 6th has been, I think, pretty inadequate given the severity of the moment, which means you look at it. And I remember on January the 6th tweeting out that what we were seeing play out in the United States was an attempted coup. It was the executive branch of government inciting an insurrection against the legislative branch of government to Mm -hmm. usurp or maintain power or to disrupt the legislative uh, branch of government's ability to carry out its duties of governance. And so as a result, any measure you want to look, it may not have been the traditional sense of like, oh, we're carrying out a coup by using the military to, you know, oppress the opposition or to do whatever. But when you look at how in the past people have described the word, um, you know, overtaking of a government, you know, the president in some countries would suspend parliament or dissolve parliament or stop the legislator from doing what it can and then use his base uh, of power to expand his power. Um, I think you can make an argument. That's what we saw on January the 6th. There was an attempt right. to stop the legislative branch of government from governance. And as a result, the president, and the executive would stay in power. So at the time, that's how I saw it. And I still believe that it was an attempted coup. Now, when you look at what has happened since then, the attempt by members of the right wing media and some Republicans to whitewash that day, to call mm-hmm. the people that were there either tourists, to say that the people there were simply protesters who were aggrieved, to, to not acknowledge that it posed a threat and a risk to the members of Congress and more importantly to our democracy is just completely mind, mind blown. So the question that I go default back to is, what is the general consensus or what is the attitude of the country towards January the 6th? And then when we talk about the specifics, as you were mentioning, Steve Bannon, the investigation, January the 6th commission, those things take time. And though there has to be a constant spotlight on it, which I think parts of the media do particularly well. I think print news um, and certainly some aspects of broadcast news have the ability to stay on top of that story and keep that story um, on the forefront of of uh, Americans' minds, but you, you that is driven by the investigation, and you can't precede the investigation. But as the investigation unfolds, we have the responsibility to constantly come back to it and say, "Hey, this was an attempted coup. Here's what we're finding out about it. Here's what we're learning about it. Here's who are the people who are defying government, defying Congress, and not wanting to participate in the investigation." And that, for me, is absolutely mind-boggling. So I, I wouldn't necessarily. Um, I wouldn't just, you know, lump sum all the media together and say everyone's doing a bad job. But I would say some parts of the media, certainly right wing media is trying to whitewash and cover up January 6th. Others are become a little bit more, you know, uh, complacent about it. And there are some who are still determined to to make sure that that day uh, is not lost uh, in American history and, and forgotten for what it is, no matter how many times people try to rewrite it. You know, what I found really troubling is that a couple of weeks ago, Condoleezza Rice, who many would have thought is a fairly reasonable Republican, remember those? You know, there there are very few of them. Like, you know, they're they're pretty much dinosaurs. Very reasonable Republican um, was on The View. And her comments blew me away. We need to just move on. We need to turn the page. And I'm like, is this the hymnal? that was given out to all Republicans, regardless of whether or not they were in government in the 80s and the 90s versus the the new Trumpers, the new insurrectionists that are in. 
how is it that that they're all, even the ones that we thought were normal, are saying turn the page? And keep in mind, this is a woman who advocated for the United States to invade other countries to promote right. democracy. And yet the very essence of our democracy was attacked on January the 6th. And she's now saying it's time to move on. It hasn't even been a year. This is the same woman who uh, wanted literally and advocated for the overthrowing of a sovereign government under the false pretense that it had weapons of mass destruction with the intent of promoting democracy, but will not stand up and defend democracy here in our own country to the degree that we have all of the answers. I'm not saying to you, make up your mind one way or the other. I get it. You want to be a Republican. But you can be a Republican and say, I want to know what happened to the last second, to every single second of the decision-making process that led up to January 6th. I want to know who the president was speaking to. I want to know who in his office and members of his team were coordinating, if at all, with those who participated in January Mm -hmm. 6th. How do people on January 6th show up with riot gear, um, bulletproof vests, Kevlar helmets, How do these people just decide to do that? That's not, I've gone to protests before. I've covered protests. I don't see people just rocking up to protests with that kind of gear without having someone telling them, here's what we're anticipating doing. So come prepared for that. So all I'm saying is, why are Republicans like Condoleezza Rice and others so afraid to get to the Mm. bottom of what happened that day? Once the investigation is over, if you say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I realize maybe it was just a bunch of people that were angry that day. Fine. But how do you make that kind of determination way before you get to the bottom of it? And again, I, I, I mean, there's Tucker Carlson has in his like, you know, false flag operation reference there. That was something that was like, can you just imagine? I made this point on the air. I was like, can you imagine mm-hmm. if a Muslim anchor had gone on an American cable network uh, channel and said, hey, 9-11 and implied that 9-11 might have been a false flag operation or said something that remotely uh, diminish the investigation into 9-11 and getting to the bottom of it? Can you imagine after a couple of uh, 10 months after 9-11 saying, you know what, I think, guys, let's move on from this. We figured out that it was a bunch of bad guys from Saudi Arabia. Let's not figure out who financed them, who funded them, who trained them. How did they get into this country? What, you know what I mean? It's just, it, it's just, like I said, it's absolutely mind boggling. You know, it really is. And when I think about it, I, I, and I'm so glad that you you brought up Tucker Carlson, not uh, that I'm glad that Tucker Carlson exists, but I'm glad that you brought him up. Because I think about you often, and I think about the many anchors of color that I, that I know, um, and hosts of color that I know, and particularly you, because, you know, everything, I look through the lens and I say, well, if they were Black, if they were Muslim, like... This wouldn't even be a conversation. And (laughs) I have a lot of anger and rage, right? Like at injustices that I see in this country on a regular basis. Tucker Carlson is the embodiment of mediocrity in so many different ways, but he is the, the poster child for white male rage. Like, how do you feel? As a as a as a as a anchor, as a as a host of color knowing that you see injustices against Muslim people, against people of color all of the time, but you have to, I mean, how do you hold in? How do you contain your level of frustration? And how do you feel at the fact that you have to contain it? Because if you were to act in the same way that Tucker Carlson did, you would be out of a job. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think what you're hitting on 
is what every black and brown person in this country deals with day in and day out when they're going about their daily lives. There are so many examples, and we've seen the videos of, you know, white people being pulled over by the police. They get to yell back at them. They get to talk back at them. The police go out of their way to accommodate them, to calm things down, to try to de-escalate the situation, to assure them that they're okay. But when we see the reverse happen with whether it's somebody who is black or brown, we know how tragically those encounters end. So I think it's part of the, sad to say, it's part of the equation that's baked into the system that over the years, uh, somebody like Tucker Carlson, uh, who has this white privilege, who can go on there and say something as just bombastic and ludicrous as saying that January the 6th, even if he doesn't say, just giving that idea a platform Mm -hmm. and letting Mm -hmm. others express it and imply it in a way that kind of uh, is, you know, hey, I'm not endorsing it, but it's, it's an idea that's out there. So I'm just going to go with it. Um, it it's, the, it's the epitome of, of privilege. And you're right. Um, you know, we hold ourselves not only just as, as individuals, but also as an organization, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. But also, we have to always be mindful that what we're saying is double checked and triple checked. And we're making sure that what we want to say does not cross that line of offending somebody or is not hyperbolic. Um, and it's it's the reality of, of where we are as a country that it, we're not on equal, um, you know, we're not on an equal playing field yet. And it's something that we all strive, I guess we strive to, to achieve one day. I mean, I certainly do. I certainly hope that we're at a place where there is uniformity in how we discuss these issues. And it's not just about Tucker Carlson, it's about the argument of free speech, right? And and what is offensive to others. And we see that now play out with the topic of critical race theory and education in uh, a place like Virginia. Who gets to define what is the appropriate education in America to be taught? And I think a lot of people have been making this point out. We've been seeing a lot of angry white parents at school boards in Virginia. I don't see any black parents on these school boards being interviewed by major cable and print media outlets. I'm not hearing their voices on the same level that I am hearing of the angry white parents. So I think that is also a valid criticism on the media, which is, are you capturing the discourse proportionately to what it really is? Are you hearing from parents on both sides of the divide, regardless of even talking about critical race theory and how you're covering it? But all the, are the voices that you're representing and taking out to the public, are they also um, being treated equally? And I would dare to let say me, no. <laughs> let me ask you this, you know, for your own show, you know, how do you decide what is going to get covered and what is not, right? Like what you have time for versus what you don't and what persp- like what perspective you want to offer. Because I think too, you know, one of the reasons why I love having journalists like yourself on the show is because I want people to understand how stories become stories, right? Like why you hear about one thing repeatedly or not at all. And I think that you do a very good job because of, you know, your global perspective, because you were on the ground in so many different um, parts of the world, particularly, you know, in the Middle East, like that you have a, a varied perspective that we don't get. Right. We don't cover, you know, uh, cover you cover stories that I feel like other people don't. So how do you go about determining what what is what is important or what you feel that the audience needs to know? 
I mean, first of all, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate you noticing that and highlighting that. I mean, look, first of all, journalism and even a broadcast show like mine, it's a collaborative effort. It's a team sport. Um, You require the team that you're working with to bring ideas and stories of things that are either not getting enough attention or that are sometimes getting a lot of attention, but not getting a specific perspective. And so one of the things that I have in, in, you know, in having this new platform and this new show, which gives me more freedom to express that perspective, is that I've been trying to take a step back at sometimes and say, how would this look for somebody outside of the United States? Mm-hmm. Um, and is there a double standard in how we apply um, coverage? on these stories, whether it's happening here or abroad. And more importantly, how do we apply the same standards to both parties, both the Democratic and Republican Party? Look, I made the point that last week, um, you know, some of the things that members of the Republican Party said, whether it's Josh Hawley or Matt Gates saying that he wanted to uh, blow up metal detectors at the Capitol, or like, again, implying the use of violence in the most sacred uh, institution of our of our government. Uh, you had uh, Lauren uh, Boebert and others and Ron DeSantis, the heir apparent to the MAGA kingdom, uh, you know, using the derogatory phrase, let's go, Brandon, and touting it and doing so publicly. Any one of these things on any given day would have been enough uh, of an outrage um, if it were being done by a Democrat. This all yep. happened in a week among Republicans. Nobody even batted an island. Nobody has gone to every Republican official and said, hey, do you condemn this? Do you stand by this? You had the president, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, say one of the most anti-Semitic things I've ever heard, which is say Israel controlled the American Congress for 10 years. Now, imagine if Ilhan Omar said that. When she said something that was controversial, she, everybody in the Democratic Party from all the way up, all mm-hmm. the way down, had to comment and condemn and put out letters and put out statements. No, the president just made another anti-Semitic remark. Nobody in the Republican Party is asked about it. It goes to, you know, like nobody is asked to condemn it. Um, And yet they want to talk about the squad and they want to talk about, uh, you know, members of Congress that are trying to put the spotlight on human rights abuses uh, overseas and saying, oh, if you're not supporting uh, a billion dollar missile defense system, you are anti-Semitic because you're risking Israel's security. So for me, it's like, you know, I look at it from the perspective of like, hey, how does this play out around the world when people hear these kinds of statements from the former president and others? What does that say about the way our democracy functions? We're, we are the first to be, we are the first country in the world to want to lecture other countries about their democracy. What we, think, what we think is a legitimate democracy, what we don't think is a legitimate democracy, what we think is legitimate behavior in democracy. And yet when you look at some of the things that are happening in our own country, you're like, wait, hold up. Look at this from the perspective of somebody outside of the United States watching our democracy, listening to our politicians, hearing the kind of comments. You're in no place to be lecturing the world about uh, democracy at this point, given what has happened since January the 6th and every every day since then. Yeah, you know, and I've said that, and I thank you so much for, for articulating that, because I find it offensive. If I were a foreign country at this point, and America wants to come in and lecture me, I'm saying to them, go clean up your own house before you have the audacity. And I say that with regard to women's rights. We always want to go to the Middle East and tell them about how they are treating women and 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 not educating women. And I'm saying, you don't allow women to have autonomy over their bodies. You don't, we won't. Uh, support equal pay and pass legislation in Congress to make sure that women are paid equally across this country, regardless of industry. We don't do that. So how do you go into places like Iran and Saudi Arabia and Iran and tell them what they should and should not be doing with their with their female population, right? Like 
Totally. And, and, and to your point, I mean, I get it. Like, there, it's not to say that America and Saudi Arabia are on the same level with women's rights, but it's the principle relative to where you are in your own development. You're saying like, oh, Saudi Arabia doesn't let women drive. That's true. That's Saudi Arabia's problem. And they're trying to deal with it. But at the same time, as you said, women here are not getting paid equal to men. They don't have family leave. Um, women don't have complete sovereignty over their body. There is discrimination in healthcare the way that it's provided. Um, and, and I'm not even going to get into things about human rights, abuse of, uh, of black people in this country, things like Guantanamo Bay, mass surveillance of Muslims. So I get it. You're, you're, you want to say that you're better than other countries, but the truth is your own human rights record, on top of which your own domestic policies are in, they don't give you the platform to stand up there and say to the world, hey, we're going to lecture you about democracy and human rights and women's rights, when in our own country, many of those uh, uh, basic rights are under constant threat. Yeah, I, it's it, it's very it's very very frustrating, and you know even even now we we continue to uphold Israel and and Israel's you know rollout of the vaccine and look how it's working, blah blah. And I'm just like, is anybody talking about what is happening to the Palestinians in terms of like their vaccination status? Right. Is anybody talking about like what is happening in Gaza and what they continue to do? Like, I'm so confused about how you can hold up this place and say, oh, well, we need to model after it. And I'm like, oh, are, are you looking at a kaleidoscope? Like, I'm just I, I, I feel crazy. And again, it's, it's the ability to cherry pick the, the parts of the narrative that you want. And this has been a consistent problem with how as a country we look at other countries and say, this is what we want to emulate and this is what we want to reject. And, and not living in that reality of what is happening on the ground is what makes it so hard. I mean, people point out human rights abuses in China. People point out human rights abuses in other countries and countries that the United States has relationships with, sells weapons to. People are not naive to understanding that foreign relations are complex. But at the same time, don't try and whitewash and hide away from the realities on the ground. Take them head on. I mean, you talked about what's happening in Israel and Palestine. There is definitely discrimination in the way the COVID vaccine um, has been rolled out in terms of the population. And it's not because people are going to say, well, look at the Arab population inside Israel. They're getting vaccinated. The truth of the matter is Israel controls all of the territory of the West Bank and Israel. There may be different types of categories of how much it has a physical presence and control over the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank. But at the end of the day, it's not like the Palestinian Authority can just call up Pfizer and have vaccines delivered right, to the West right. Bank without Israel's approval and not have money that it's sending and transferred going through uh, banking mechanisms, international banking mechanisms um, that are part of agreements. It, it, they don't have the sovereignty to do that. So they just don't have the ability to go out there and try to execute their own public health policy, so to speak. That's in addition to all the other things that have been coming out in recent days about um, mass surveillance, uh, according to the Washington Post, the mass surveillance oh, program, yeah. you know, that the Israeli military was engaging in, in terms of how they track Palestinians and taking their pictures and putting them in a database. You know, look, we talk about it in our country here and how much we value our freedoms, despite the fact that they have come under uh, a lot of stress in the last 20 years because of the war on terror. But we complain all the time when we feel the government is overreaching with the way it is surveilling its citizens. And here is this article in the Washington Post mm -hmm. revealing this allegation that Israel has been mass surveilling Palestinians. And nobody's like, you're not hearing any member of Congress saying uh, this is outrageous. We have to investigate this. We have to stop this. We have to make sure our taxpayer dollars are not going to the violation of human rights abuses. They're not helping 
the technology of a country that's using it in human rights abuses. Uh, as we now have seen with this spyware that the U.S. government is saying, hey, you know what, this NSO spyware, I think it's crossing the line. When the spyware is being used to target human rights defenders and journalists, um, you know, we have crossed a major line and we have to ask ourselves to what extent we are complicit in that by just simply turning a blind eye and not speaking up against it, even if it is a country that we perceive to be a very close ally of ours. Yeah, and I would I would say if you haven't seen uh, Coded Bias, the doc the documentary on Netflix, uh, which talks which is it's centering all black and brown uh, exceptional algorithm theorists and 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 folks who discovered all of the flaws, the deep and flaws and racism and discrimination uh, in our algorithms, but talking about mass surveillance, it's a it's a fantastic uh, and scared the hell out of me. I want to throw my smart TV out of the window as well. <laughs> my phone. I'm like, we're all being tracked. Um, finally, Amen. I, I want to ask you this because I follow you on Instagram. Um, how do you continue to follow the news in such detail to report on these things that are really soul depleting, um, that are really soul crushing in a lot of ways? And how, how do you, how do you find an out? What are your outlets, right? To be able to analyze the news, deliver it to all of us, but then not internalize the tragedy that will, you know, for a lot of people on the front lines, turns into depression, turns into anxiety, turns into a lot of other things. I say I follow your Instagram because one, I'm waiting on my my invitation to brunch because apparently you're an amazing chef um, and you have, you know, beautiful kids and, and, and wife, but, but how, but how do you maintain your, your, your sense of joy, um, and, and like, and passion when this is the work that you do. And a lot of it is about tragedy and despair. Yeah. You know, it's a really good question. I mean, I think, first of all, I think it is so important for everyone, regardless of what they do in life to be able to have a good support system and a support system starts with good friends, good family, a good network of people that you can kind of like shoot the shit with and just kind of get your mind off of things. Uh, and people who you can call and say, man, I'm really down. I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. I'm bothered by things that are happening personally, professionally, even in the news. So having that outlet is very important. If you try to constantly bottle things in and just kind of take more and more of the pressure on you, um, I think it could be destructive. And I'm not going to lie. I feel a tremendous amount of pressure all the time because you just asked me a really important question. How do you decide what goes in your show every yeah. Saturday and Sunday? And I feel like I'm trying to watch and consume everything like everyone else to the degree that I want to say I want to be able to make sure I cover all the biggest stories of the week. And I think it's 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 really it's definitely really hard for sure to consume everything and to think about all the things that you wanted to read all the articles. And there's always a little bit of guilt and remorse that like, oh, I didn't get a chance to read this whole article or I haven't read this whole entire book before my interview um, over the weekend. And that's definitely stressful. So I think you yeah. have to you have to take a step back. You have to, you know, work within a team. I mean, I have an amazing team and I trust them and it makes it makes my job a lot easier knowing that I'm not just one person looking at one story, but in fact, we're, we're like 10 or 15 people looking at different stories. That's one. And two, have a good support system that you can kind of unplug when you come home. As you said, I like, I love to cook. It's something that I've gotten into over the last couple of years. So it gives me a little bit more purpose and intent when I'm not in the studio and I'm not reading that I can kind of apply myself to and, and it gives me a little bit of escape and it makes me feel like I've achieved something even if the food tastes bad. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I just made an amazing pumpkin pie or this pie tasted horrible, but at least I spent like three, four hours learning how to make uh, pie crust, you know? So 
I love I love it. Well, I- I'm waiting for the Amen Eats podcast. I'm waiting for the Amen Eats cooking show, Amen and Friends. I'm waiting for <laughs> I'm waiting for that, that iteration of your <laughs> I want I want that iteration of your of your media career because I-, I I love to see it. It looks amazing. Um, Amen, thank you so much for for making the time to join Woke AF. And thank you for all of the work that you are doing on your new show thank on you. Saturdays. Thank you for coming and on and joining us. I know asking you to come on the show on the weekends is always uh, it's a tough order. You know, you want to have some time where you're like, you know what, I just need to unplug from all this madness. So we appreciate when you come on. And uh, well, I very rarely say no to you. So, <laughs> so you ask, you ask, and you're one of the few people. I'm like, oh, it's a weekend, but it's amen. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do thank it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, friend. Appreciate you. And guys, everyone, uh, check out Amen shows on Saturdays and Sundays and on Peacock on on Fridays. Uh, you know him. You love him. It's tremendous viewing. And there are not a lot of people who I support and have passion for uh, these days on TV, but you're still one of them. So I appreciate that. That is it, dear friends, for me today on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.